Hi, I'm Dr. Paula Redmond, a clinical psychologist, and you're listening to the When Work Hurts podcast. On this show, I want to explore the stories behind the statistics of the mental health crisis facing healthcare professionals today, and to provide hope for a way out through compassion, connection, and creativity. Join me as I talk to inspiring clinicians and thought leaders in healthcare about their unique insights and learn how we can support ourselves and each other when work hurts. We know that when work and life hurts, being able to talk about how we feel and have those feelings heard and validated can make a huge difference to how we navigate and survive trauma. For those working on the front line during the COVID pandemic, this has never been more important. In this week's episode, I spoke with Claire Goodwin-Fee, a psychotherapist who set up an organisation called Frontline 19 to respond to this need. I started by asking her to explain what Frontline 19 does. We currently offer emotional support to the NHS and frontline workers. Um, We started back in March of 2020 and it was a small idea I had while sitting on my sofa um, and I, I, back in 2018, the NHS had saved my dad's life and he'd been in intensive care for a few weeks and he'd been in a coma. And so when the pandemic hit and the type of illnesses that people were having, obviously due with COVID being put into comas, I kept thinking back to these people that I knew in intensive care that we'd got to, to know pretty well. And so I just thought I, I wanted to do something. I felt quite incompetent. Uh, you know, what can you do to help people and to kind of support them? And I knew they'd be hit pretty hard by the whole COVID pandemic. And so um, I thought I'd do a very small project. And I thought, you know, if we can kind of maybe, I just thought it'd be me on my own, to be quite honest. If I could get a few friends, because I've been a psychotherapist for, I think, nearly 20 years now. And I thought, if I get a few friends together, um, we can kind of match some doctors and nurses up to to kind of some therapists. And that might help for a bit. Um and so, you know, I thought we're 40 people maybe or oh, 50 sounds like quite a lot. Um, and it kind of snowballed from there. In the first day, um, I did a little page on Facebook. I mean, now laughing back, I was very naive to it all, but I did a, a, a page on Facebook. I think it was called something like Support the NHS with COVID-19. And I put it up and I pressed the button. And within about half an hour my phone was just going crazy with these pings going off and 700 people in the first day alone said we need support and also by the way can we help um and i just thought I mean, i've got to be, <laughs> I've got to be careful not to swear to that i thought oh gosh and darn it what the hell have i done <laughs> as you do um yeah so basically it took off from there and we've just done a hundred thousand counseling sessions that we've given away so it's been very, very busy and it, it's taken off in a way that I would never have anticipated it to do. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of the background, really. So at the moment, we do one-to-one counselling um, for people that want it. We might do we do up to a maximum of 12 sessions, um, but some people just want one session just to debrief and to offload. Others want to kind of to have you know, a a whole block of sessions. And we just offer that support to help them through what is a very, very difficult time. And I know because I have done some volunteering 
for Fortnite 19. That part of what your offer is, is matching, you know, qualified, you know, well-trained um, clinicians who are volunteering their time with frontline staff, um, which I think is an important part of your offering. It is. I think it had to be... It had to be balanced. So I've done it on kind of a bit, we had nothing. We had literally no money. We haven't got a huge amount now, but we, we literally did everything on a shoestring. And when we first started matching, it was, we had a, a um, an exercise book and a pet and we literally was just matching people up like that. And so I wanted to kind of, I'd love to be able to pay all of the therapists that give their time, even though quite a few of them when I've had that discussion, they're like, we don't want pay and that's not what it's about. Um, so I came up with this idea of this bartering system so that qualified professionals would give one hour of their week and in return we would give them really good training, CPD opportunities, clinical supervision, support, templates for any kind of paperwork they might need, so contracts or agreements, all of that sort of thing. So, And, and a really supportive team because when you join us as a volunteer, I think you're joining kind of like a, a family really because we're all doing the same thing and all wanting to kind of contribute to what has become a huge wave of positivity. I've really enjoyed the work that I've done. It's been very rewarding. And I wondered, Claire, um, you know, we're now we're kind of, you know, nearly two years into this experience. I know you said that you'd initially thought it would just be a few months. Um, What themes have emerged in terms of why people... Uh, my frontline staff are are seeking the help. I think part of something that I didn't really appreciate at the time was how how underdeveloped, that's a polite way to put it, how underdeveloped the helping professions are in looking after themselves, but also in their levels of emotional literacy. And by that I mean is, is you know, how do I feel, why do I feel this way and what can I do? And they just don't ask for help and there's a a huge amount of taboo around asking for any kind of support with mental health. And that really surprised me. Um, A common question, we don't get it too much now because I've been very vocal about the fact that if anyone contacts us, it's it's a confidential service. Um, But the, the early days, we used to get email after email of really interested in your service, but are you going to tell my boss that I'm in touch with you? Um, and that was really quite surprising. Um, and so some of the biggest themes have been about, it comes in waves really, a bit like the pandemic. Um, at the start, it was anxiety, very extreme anxiety about what was to come, you know, how dangerous was it going to be? Am I going to be okay? You know, people have got children, husbands, wives, partners that, you know, perhaps were vulnerable. Some people were shielding. There was all sorts of different things. But the main thread was about anxiety. And I guess we can all relate to that, really, because I felt quite anxious at start thinking, like, how does this work? You know, and I remember looking out of my front room window. Um, it was about three o'clock in the morning and seeing the lights of my neighbour and they were doing exactly the same. We were kind of almost like looking down the road you expected to see kind of like this Sputnik thing come marching down the road because this thing was kind of like taking over. And, and I think people could relate to that. So, and then it changed a bit and it got very quiet. And I was like, oh, maybe the work's done. Like maybe they're okay. And of course they weren't okay. They were just very busy in 
the hospitals and in the community kind of you know getting things sorted out and working with the patients and kind of were under extreme extreme pressures and then when covid numbers dropped a bit we then got really really busy again um and so it tends to follow up and down and in saying that it's it's been pretty solid pretty busy um probably for at least the last six seven months things like post-traumatic stress disorder we see that quite a lot which is understandable i mean some of the conditions that people have worked within have literally been like battle zones like a war zone um and so i think you need the mental space to unpack that really and so that all the time you're busy you might feel really tired and exhausted but you tend not to perhaps get the sharper end of ptsd like symptoms until there's a little bit more space i mean that's kind of like a generalization but and then i think just recently and this probably will come as no to surprise to you is burnout it's the biggest thing is burnout we are seeing so many people leaving the professions you know in healthcare nurses uh, consultants doctors um, paramedics community nurses you know people that are really incredibly experienced and they have just had enough and that really worries me because i think what does that mean for the profession what does that mean for the community what does it mean for the nhs itself so it's um yeah it's 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 kind of it comes in ways but that's i think the the current trend if you like at the moment is about burnout and and being emotionally exhausted but again i think that's also echoed outside of the healthcare professions too i don't think anybody's okay at the moment i guess is what i'm saying and it's interesting um when you were talking about that sense of you know when covid numbers dropped and that then saw a bit of a surge in people reaching out. Um, and that was my experience too. And I think what I noticed in the work that I do also with um, doctors and, and nurses was that during that period, people were having and experiencing post-traumatic stress symptoms. But because they were no longer in that context, they couldn't really make sense of it. Um, you know, their, their, their nervous systems were still in a fight or flight state, but because in their heads they were past that and out of that phase, that disconnect was, was really worrying. Um, you know, they could make sense of, of the, the stress and the tension when they were in it but they couldn't make sense of it when they were out of it. And I think that was something that was really helpful about having a space to talk and to talk with someone who understands trauma and understands the impact on our nervous systems and just helping people to make sense of the fact that, you know, our bodies keep the score and, you know, we're still needing to work through that stress and the trauma, um, and for many people, not actually having the time and space to do that, you know, it was the shift from, you know, COVID numbers dropped, but then suddenly everything else was, you know, business as usual almost from a, a health service point of view, which was very overwhelming. I think so. And I, and I think you're right. It's about 
kind of been in that moment and not really understanding what's happening and there is a real within the the kind of healthcare community there's a real lack of knowledge about prevention about management about resilience and also i think there's also a big i don't know quite how to say it but there's a there's a huge issue with perfectionism and you know when you look at doctors and and um, nurses that there's this thing around we know that health is important that that you know that goes without saying however there's this massive thing about it has to be perfect there's a perfection to it and so even kind of some of the junior doctors put themselves under so much pressure and the hours that they work and the way in which they work is very back in the dark ages and and I, I think that when you have a community of people that kind of all do the same thing because that's how it's always been done that it, it it becomes quite difficult to challenge that particularly in times where you really got your back up against the wall and I remember talking to um, a research scientist that had been moved onto a covid ward um, and you know he's used to dealing with kind of research and being kind of not really at the the kind of in the midst of having lots of patients and stuff around him and so was on a ward and their first job they were given as they walked in the sister gave me a huge pile of papers and said there you go and they were like well what that this is a list of names like what is this that's a list of all the people that have died and you need to phone their relatives and tell them and this person said well what do i say and then and the sister said i don't give a shit what you say just go, go in that office take the paper the numbers are there just tell them they've died of covid blah 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 and you think oh my god you monster but being that person how do you manage that you know you have to at some point you're human you shut down you have to just do the not the bare minimum but emotion you can't be present within that because it's way too damaging and so they went into this room and started making the phone calls and you know some of these people because at that stage this was pretty early on at that stage it was effect we had no vaccine and it was affecting people that were normally would be considered fit and healthy and so you had 40 year olds who had died who had children and this person's having to phone these people up and when when we did the um the hopeline campaign which is the campaign to leave messages for the nhs you know to support and you can phone in as a an nhs and frontline worker and listen to those and they're ever i mean honestly if you have a bad day phone in and listen to them because they are such lovely messages and they're loving and supportive and some of them are deeply moving and i remember when we started doing the uh the film for that to advertise it and they asked me about different case studies and I said you have to say about this and, and we swapped it around a bit but one of the the first opening credits is about that particular story and it's about having to make those phone calls and being emotionally not equipped to deal with that I mean it blows my mind that you have people who work in I don't know cancer or palliative care that have never been given any training on telling someone that they're going to die that blows my mind like how is that even a thing and you think to yourself no wonder people are stressed before the pandemic so if you put me in a situation where you want me to talk about something that i don't know or do something that i've not been trained to do you're the gap between 
what you believe your competency is and what is needed is huge and there in that space it's a lot of stress yeah and especially as you say for people who um tend to not only really care about doing a good job but also have a a layer of perfectionism around that then that's a horrible place to be and it it creates a an untenable situation for everybody because we have kind of these I guess unrealistic expectations of what medical professionals can do and you know there's a lot of pressure I remember sitting with my dad and, and every single day the the team would say he was in Kings in London and they were magnificent and I, I have no doubt that if it wasn't for them he wouldn't be here and I remember every day one of them would sit with me and say look you do understand that your dad is very very sick and I said no I do understand that and they said well that means that he may not survive this and they were very good because they gently kind of it wasn't kind of doom and gloom but they they kind of had to keep it within reasonable parameters and I'm sure they would be happy that they were you know he's still here and you know he's 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 doing okay um but it's having those conversations and kind of having the boundaries with some of the families it's been that's been a very very difficult thing for them and also it's just been on every level it's been an assault on every level so they don't know how to treat this new thing that's just appeared you know they go to battle you know battle star red light whatever um or should I say like you know red light um, response and they're working shoulder to shoulder with colleagues that are living in garages or hotels so they can keep away from their families because they don't want to pass this stuff on they're losing colleagues to covid um they're nursing them they're paramedics of you know might lose one or two people a week in their shift pattern that's kind of unfortunately the nature of what they do and they're losing four or five in a shift and they're loading people back onto an ambulance and they're dying on the trolley because they've left it too late they're too frightened to go to hospital and it's it's horrific i mean this is just this is just the tip of the iceberg of what these people have been through and then to get abuse for not doing X, Y, and Z, or you know, people moaning about the length of time they're waiting. Of course, nobody wants to wait while they're uncomfortable or in pain. But these people are human beings and actually need lots of support, lots of care, and, and actually they need a space to be able to decompress. And this whole experience of the pandemic has been a bit like being poisoned there's only so many people you can talk to about it you can't really go home and oh how was your day love yeah i lost 60 people overnight and we had to ring round mortuaries trying to find freezer space because we ran out it's horrible it's horrible stuff and so it's been very heavy i think for a lot of people um I certainly will never be the same person that I was before. That's for sure. Um, I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. It just is what it is, really. And um, and even if everything finished tomorrow, I don't regret doing what I've done. But it's certainly been hard. It's been difficult. And there's been a lot... You know, if I think back to, you know, this idea, this very naive idea about helping a few people... Um, and how quickly it spread and how big it got and, and the, the depth of of need that's there 
um it's it's been a it's been a real journey and interesting to think claire about i guess some parallel processes there around you know you and your organization supporting the front line um who are holding so much for their patients and their colleagues and the sense of i guess the, the behind the line support that maybe the you know psychological well-being workforce is trying to hold um how has that been for you kind of you know what impact do you think that's had on on you or and the people that you work with in terms of holding that for clients i think that i mean i've reduced my own client um i had a private practice I've got very reduced numbers now because when this first happened, it was only meant to be little and obviously it took off and I've had to kind of cut back. I think that within our industry, I think that we are also at risk of burnout. I mean, I know that a lot of the recommendations is about having um, clinical supervision, which is, I always describe that to people that aren't aware of it. It's like the space between management and kind of therapy it's like this little space that that happens in between where you can talk about your own stuff and but in respect of kind of client work I know that you know we're expected to do it once a month for an hour and a half I do it every two weeks and that I found really helps because that's my space to offload and also um I think it was at the start of this year I had some sessions with a psychologist just to help me make sense of what I'd been through, not only in just a professional capacity, but also I'm a mum of two young children. You know, they were out of school. My husband was at risk. I was at risk. I've got two parents. I was going to say are elderly, but if they hear this, they'd probably tell me off, but they're in their 70s. And so it's had an impact on us all. My life doesn't look anything like it did pre-pandemic. So... I think that we are all, no one's okay. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but nobody's 100%, you know, having living their best life. Everybody's struggled or have been through something. And the reason I say that is not to be a Debbie Downer, but to kind of say that's very normal and it's a natural response to what we've been through. And actually, the more you talk about it and you share it, the easier it becomes and actually... Other people are like, yeah, it is a bit rubbish and I've really struggled with this, this and this. And it alleviates the pressure on you. But also you start to perhaps be kinder to yourself and expect less. We've all been in a marathon and we're expecting to now do a sprint at the end of it. That's not possible. And, and you know, well, I'm not as, you know, I don't have the output that I used to have. Well, no, of course you're not going to. We've been running with this high level of of stuff it's like having too many tabs open on the computer you know oh am i going to get toilet roll are the kids going to be okay are my mum and dad going to be all right oh my gosh we've got this chance of vaccine is it going to poison me you know all of these things having discussions with people and friends that perhaps don't feel the same way about the vaccine as you do that that's the thing of itself um political considerations losing the laissez-faire attitude about getting just a common cold I miss who thought we'd ever say that. I miss the chance to go, oh, it's just a cold. Now it's like, hang on, have we done a PCR? And all this language, lockdown, PCR, lateral flow, all of this stuff that we've had to learn, there's so much ambiguous loss about the loss of what we could have had, what we should have had, 
what may have been and and then the normal losses like normal things about taking a holiday i mean it makes me laugh now we couldn't go away but it never occurred to me to take a break from work because i wasn't going on holiday and when you talk to people other people like yeah i did the same thing why didn't you just take a week off work and stay at home because it didn't i genuinely didn't occur to me and there's something about you, you, you use the term heavy, that this is heavy kind of load to carry. And um, one of the things I think that's been so difficult is that not only has the load been heavier and, you know, for some of us that's been greater than others, you know, those on the front line or those who've had to deal with, you know, financial uncertainty or illness or bereavement, um, you know, some of us have have been lucky to not have to face those things so directly. Um, but at the same time as the load being heavier, we haven't had access to the things that normally would help us lighten that load or, or share that load. You know, we haven't been able to just hang out with people or, you know, do fun things or see art, all of those things that, yeah... That, that would help us um, manage and process that stress. So I think, yeah, a real double whammy there of, of heavier load and, and not able to relieve. Definitely. And I think that, it, I mean, my learning since this all started, and it sounds very cliche, but it, it's honestly genuinely meant, is it is the little things that matter. I now could not care less where I make my friends. I could sit on a park bench and we could both have a packet of Watsits and I wouldn't care. As long as we're together and we're chatting and I'm with that person, anything else is a bonus. And I genuinely mean that. And, you know, I remember meeting a friend of mine. Um, I don't live too far from Bluewater, the big shopping centre. Got loads of car parks. And we parked up next to each other but had the, this like space in between had the windows down she had her snacks there's me sitting there with my little hummus and cucumber chatting away and it was freezing cold but it was magnificent because in that moment I was just with my friend and although I couldn't touch her and again that's another interesting thing is about touch because I'm quite a tactile person and not being able to touch different people like friends and hugging them that was a real kind of, if I look back now, it's quite a, a bereavement of sorts. I know that sounds a bit drastic, but when I lived in America years ago, because obviously I didn't know anybody there, people people don't really, they're not that tactile, well, they weren't where I was anyway. And I really remember really missing that, thinking, gosh, I've not touched anybody in three months, not even just like a hand on the shirt, nothing. And I remember during the pandemic, kind of sitting watching TV and, and holding my husband's hand and saying, do you know what, it's really weird, I really miss touching people. And I even noticed people drove differently during lockdown. Now, as a carer for my mum and dad and being a frontline worker myself, I had to get out and about and, and do certain things and work. And the cars were actually keeping a distance away from each other. And everybody was trying to get where they needed to get in a hurry but there was still this gap and, and, and even I was doing it, you kind of like stayed way back. And it was so ingrained into us at that point to, to keep away from people that I think we a lot of people shut down and kind of really isolated themselves from other people. And I think 
that's had a massive impact on people too. And I think, Claire, not just the absence of touch, but that touch became a threat. So the thing that was a source of comfort was actually a source of threat, you know, to hug someone or to receive a hug. People became unsafe, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. That's a really good point. It, it, and and even the silly thing, just before lockdown, I I've got asthma, and I went in. It was cold, and I went inside a building. And so, from going to cold to hot, it makes me cough. Oh my days! This lady launched herself at me and was like, "You got?" And I was like, "Whoa!" And I kind of like held up my ventilator whilst I was gasping for breath and went. I've got asthma, I've got asthma. But she was not happy. And I said, I haven't got a cough watch. So I used it. I said, look, there's nothing there now. And she was like, okay. But but that kind of dealing with other people's fear levels. I mean, you know yourself, you're in a supermarket, you hear someone cough and you can't help but go, hmm, is that a normal cough or is that something else? This is why I say nobody's okay. Because I think we've normally, if I'd have felt some of the things I'd felt during the pandemic, I never would have worked. And also, previously, if you were going through something, then you'd be like, actually, I'm going to take some time out and you'd pass your clients on to someone else or you'd go, like, I'm taking a bit of time out. Everybody was going through stuff. And what was very, what I found very difficult was when I was working with my clients and they would talk about something pandemic related and I could really feel myself responding to that and kind of a couple of times were quite triggered and you know, I had somebody that was not a fan of vaccines and it was very difficult because emotionally, normally, of course you do emotionally respond to things in, in therapy sessions, but this felt really raw, almost as if I'd have a, had a bereavement, was working with a bereavement client, which we know would never be an ethical thing to do, not in that moment, not when it was so raw. And it was just so odd thinking. Everybody's going through stuff all at the same time mm, like a collective trauma isn't it i mean i i when i i sometimes sit and i think about how society will change because of the because of this situation and i and i i am in no doubts it will um and i i'm hopeful that some of it will be positive so i'd like to think that people perhaps appreciate each other more I'd like to think that, but I also see at the moment a lot of anger, a lot of hurt, a lot of people looking for somebody to be angry at, whether that be people that haven't had a vaccine or the government or whoever it is, they're very angry about what they've been through. Um, We've all sustained loss. We've all had some level of trauma of some degree whether it's mild moderate or significant and I think that I I used to think about in the early days of the pandemic I used to think about my grandparents who went through the second world war and I used to and I and there were times thinking I just can't do this I just I was at home with a four-year-old a seven-year-old my husband two dogs you know parents that needed support couldn't go out shopping so it felt like a lot and I was working and living in the same space and and that of itself taught me a lot and I just thought I don't think I can do this and I used to sit and think yeah but hang on a minute Claire look your grandparents were bombed they used to go to sleep 
in the underground because their house was unsafe or they'd be in a an air raid shelter and they didn't have enough food to eat you know they were on rationing and all of that stuff so you know what you can get through this and you just have got to do what you can when you can and just look after you know yourself in the best way that you can and so i kept thinking back to you know at some point covid's got to become something where it's a treatable manageable thing and i just kept thinking i have to keep the faith that we're going to get to that point and so i think that what's really interesting is that we i personally used previous history and experiences to help me in the here and now to manage what i found quite a difficult challenging situation and do you think that that potentially one of the the positive things to come out of this is to highlight the emotional impact of work on healthcare professionals and the need for psychological support for the health service absolutely i mean for me that's a big part of my reason my why is because people in the healthcare professions hospitals community paramedics and and frontline staff full stop police fire their support is sometimes it just is not there and other times there is a a basic um support system there but is it effective no it's not um and it needs to be we're expecting so much of this collective of people and yet you know i i spoke to somebody the other day that said my trust does have emotional support i said that's amazing yeah but the wait is three years and this person was feeling was at the extent where they were actually feeling suicidal because they were so emotionally exhausted by what they'd been through. And we know physically and mentally they're both enmeshed. I mean, at the start of this, you mentioned about the body knows the score. Well, Bessel van der Kolk, who is you know one of the world leaders in trauma, he talks about that connection all the time and it, and it, and it absolutely is there. When you're a bit run down, the first thing that goes for me is my throat gets a little bit croaky and you know, it, it kind of, our bodies are a mirror about our mental health and vice versa. And so what needs to happen is it needs to change for future generations. It needs to change for the the paramedic that's just started their training. It needs to be something where people's mental health is honoured across the board, whether that be in corporate, private, public sector, Work-life balance needs to be much, much more considered. And I think in the healthcare professions, this this toxic perfectionism, which is rife, is absolutely rife. And this, this blame culture um, of, okay, something's wrong, wrong, who can we blame? It has to stop because who, because we're gonna get to a stage where people are not gonna wanna work in this community and, and you know what I'd, it's it's a rough deal you people how oh, they get paid this money my doctor phoned me at nine o'clock the other night 9 p.m to talk about a standard thing you know that i needed some support with and i said to her are you have you got many more people to see she said yeah i have i've got about another two or three 
And I said, is it normal that you're working to this extent? She went, yeah. And this lady has young children of her own. Um, one of them is definitely, I think, four. And works part-time. And part-time consists of working two and a half days a week until nine, ten o'clock at night. That's not part-time. And then to read about your profession in the newspaper as being incompetent, lazy, rah, 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 and all that stuff. So, yes, I think there needs to be training in every form of healthcare profession. If you sign up to learn, if you're going to do a degree in nursing, you need to do a section, even if it's two days, on mental health for you, for your colleagues, and also for your patients. Um, if you are going to train to be a doctor, same thing. And I also think they need to make CPD, continual, continual professional development, they need to make that one day a year to do with mental health. Because if you've got a doctor that is struggling to tell somebody that they've got a life limited condition or they're terminal, they're going to go one of two ways. They're either going to burn out or they're going to turn into this very robotic kind of detached person who for the patient and their family is going to be it's going to be difficult to be around and it actually has an impact on the care that's given within that space but also as a human being we just need to know that everybody has ups and downs everyone has good and bad days and that you know what perfectionism it just doesn't exist all perfectionism does is robs the day of your joy you know good enough is good enough i mean winnicott did this whole thing about being a good enough mum and you know mum guilt is is a oh my gosh is a huge thing and a lot of women in healthcare are mums and they're trying to manage home life being a mum with having a career and everything else and it's really bloody tough and so we need to have these conversations about one, it needs to be at the start of the career, it needs to be in the middle and it needs to be at the end. But also, I think just generally as a society, we need to just start talking about how we're feeling. It is utterly ridiculous to me that people say things like, oh, don't cry, you're upset yourself. Hello, newsflash, if I wasn't upset, I wouldn't be bloody crying. And also, you wouldn't say to somebody, don't go to the toilet because you'll be really weak pardon but but people say this all the time oh don't get upset you know you don't get up you you know you'll be weak or people think i'm weak if i do x y and z or if i get upset it's a very natural normal response if i poke you in the eye it's going to water if you're upset you may cry that's totally standard so do you know what let's stop playing this bullshit game about we shouldn't do this or we should do that and or how's this going to look to other people just stop Let's just start having these conversations with each other and listening to each other. And just on that note, you've, you've talked about some of the, the things that you have in place to support you in the work in terms of professional support. Um, but what are the other things that, that keep you going in this work? Um, something I'm passionate about, and I'm, I'm doing a naughty smile because it, was, it brings out my inner child, is adults need to be kids they need to play. Who made up the rule that we don't get to play anymore? That's a rubbish rule. So I decided that wasn't cool. That was being chucked out. So, you know, I'll do things like, I'm lucky I've got two little kids. I have that as an excuse. But do you know what? I'd do it anyway. Um, I might 
in the morning I put on music and I dance around to it if I'm feeling low. Um, self-care for me is not about, I don't do face masks or stuff like that, but I do do singing very badly to Michael Bublé or I might do kind of hideous dancing around the front room. What are your favourite tunes to dance uh, to? <laughs> I like Christmas all year round. I have to be honest. And I got I got married in May and I had Christmas songs at my wedding. And everyone went, you know this is... I said, yeah, I do and I don't care. Anything and everything from Stevie Wonder to the Pogues to everything in between. I love reading. Again, people accept me to be reading, I don't know, the history of Jung or Freud. And no, at the moment I'm reading Millie Johnson book, which is an absolute chick flick type book. Um... I love I'm a huge fan of Harry Potter um any of that stuff Disney I love a bit of Disney I just think you know what do what makes you happy and have fun with it you haven't got to be serious all the time but I think self-care looks like having fun enjoying yourself have a bubble bath for four hours if you if you can get away with it please do it for my sake if nothing else um, but you know top the water up take books in there take snacks in there have fun dance around the front room I mean I've got a uh, a puppy um, she's coming up to a year now who is an absolute she's bonkers but I adore her um, and I know you've, you've got a dog too I mean you know taking her for a walk she makes me get out because if she doesn't she sits and literally puts her head on the computer saying mum come on we need to go out um but all of those things, I think it's about just do things that make you happy. Don't don't worry about what other people think. If it makes you happy and it's not harmful, do that and then do some more of it. So it sounds like for you, there's something about connection to, to your playful side, something about movement. Um, I'm open to any of it. Yeah. And keeping it. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things, isn't it, that we need to remember that when we are stressed and when things are weighing heavy on us, that we have a tendency to to shut down, to withdraw and to drop some of these things. Whereas if we can enable and allow ourselves to open up. Even asking for help, and I know that that's difficult in the helping professions, just asking for some help. And I had to learn how to do that. And it's not easy, but, you know, asking for help and just if somebody opens up to you because very often we focus on it's good to talk and all of that stuff but then it's like then what because we've just said there's not the resources there so tips if someone opens up to you and says they're having a rubbish time don't try and fix it it's really simple just listen and say i'm really sorry thank you claire thank you paula thank you for listening if you'd like to find out more about frontline 19 and the support they offer go to frontline19.com. And if you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please do share it with others, post about it on social media or leave a rating and a review. I'd really love to connect with you. So do come and find me on LinkedIn or Twitter. And you can also sign up to my mailing list to keep up to date with future episodes and get useful psychology advice and tips straight to your inbox. All the links are in the show notes. Thanks again, and until next time, take good care.